Hello, I'm Aidan Gallagher. I'm Peter Reeves. Welcome to API, our integration podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to set the world to rights on various topics in the world of enterprise integration, and it scratches our collective itches as engineers who just want to uh, rant about enterprise IT over a cup of coffee. Or tea. Hello, Peter. Hello, Aidan. So what are we going to talk about today, Peter? We're going to talk about our next um, sort of integration archetype. We're going to talk about remote procedure calls. RPCs. Yes. It's just APIs, isn't it? It's not just APIs. It's it's kind of like an abstracted version of uh, what I would think of as a service. You are invoking a some kind of service or process that's on a different uh, system to what you are. Go on, tell me what the tell me what the textbook definition is. I actually don't know. What I would say if I was trying to give a textbook answer would mm. be that it is an application to application protocol which provides a method for one machine to call the function of another. And what I think we're going to talk about is what they are, what the evolution of remote procedure calls is or was or will be. Mm-hmm. And then um, look at specific things, maybe like talk about services, APIs, and maybe even microservices if if we're feeling um, adventurous. If we're feeling adventurous. I, I've got a feeling that this evening is, is not an adventurous evening, but you never know. Go on, get, go on, give it, give us the historian spiel and then we'll discuss what it is. So I've got my monocle on. I'll pretend I'm watching an episode of Time Team. There's a bunch of scruffy people in a field behind you just walking around aimlessly. So, originally, we had the problem where individual computers couldn't talk to each other, and then all of a sudden they could via things like sockets. So they connect via sockets, and they would communicate, but you'd basically have to sort of jump to the other server and then run some invocations and and almost bring back the variable, variable with you. In 1975... A guy called James E. White wrote a lovely paper called High Level Framework for Network-Based Resource Sharing. And the general concept was he'd create an application-to-application protocol that let one system run commands on the other without having to jump onto that box and run the commands there. It's sometimes known as remote procedure invocation, remote method invocation and remote procedure calls. Although RPI and RMI were really hard to find when I first started doing sort of investigations into it. And it basically lets you expose functionality in a controlled way the general principle is that you shouldn't think that you're running your procedure on another machine it should feel like one big one big machine you shouldn't think that or the application shouldn't be concerned the application definitely knows but you as the consumer i think don't doesn't know first time rpc was used was uh, 1984 a guy called birrell and another one called nelson basically created a mechanism that let one of them call the procedures on the other one's machine. When uh, machine A called machine B, its processing got suspended and it had to wait for the return um, from machine B before it could continue processing. So that's how, even from the application level, it feels like it's one it's one process because it has to do the pause while it waits for the response to come back. Boom, history done. Thank you, Tony Robinson. From, from the application's point of view, um, it, it's, it's one blocking process that it waits for to complete, unless we're talking async land. So we were talking earlier about this. We always do like a pre-podcast preamble. And you had a really good example where you raised the point about how is RPC different from sending, say, a message? I was trying to distill the distinct essence of a remote procedure call compared to some of the other 
integration patterns that we've discussed. And, and the questions that I posed to you, I think, was, is request response RPC, the toys RPC? Is, is a one-way invocation of service a remote procedure call? So that was what I was, that's what I was, we were digging into this afternoon. What, what, what did we, what did we think, what did we find? I think we flip-flopped as to whether request response was always a remote procedure call. I think we flip-flopped as to whether a, a one-way datagram message was always a remote procedure call. I think, A, why does this matter? We'll come back to A. B, the distinction, I believe, is when you are trying to invoke a service or move some kind of processing. If you are wanting, if you're trying to get some processing to occur on a remote machine and say it's going to return the result to you, that's, that's, a, that's a remote procedure, of course. If you if you just want to kick off a process on a remote machine, may, maybe it's a maybe it's some sort of process that has no output. You're just happy that it's been executed, or maybe it does have an output, but you don't care about it. I would say that that's also a remote procedure. But then you but then you think I've just communicated an instruction from my local machine to a remote machine. How is this not messaging? And I think the next step is kind of, what is the context of this message you're sending? Is it an instruction for this remote machine to do something? Or is it just the transfer of data? And you're, you're assuming that there is a, some application on the remote machine that's going to be reading this message and thinking, oh, better do something. Yeah, I think that was good. I, I always like those conversations because it's a safe space to get things wrong. We can say, I think it's this, and then talk through that assertion. I really liked, for example... Um, that you did actually. This, this the, the hypothetical situation was people are placing votes for their favourite colour, and if I send an instruction to you, I, I want say I want to vote. I, I want to vote for red. If I if I te- if I instruct you update the vote update the red votes by one, that would be a remote procedure call. But if I just if I tell you red is my favourite colour, that's a message. The message is the transfer of data. Yeah, I could choose to process that how I like. So if I've got that message, I can say, well, given I received this message, I want to do things with it. So that's me choosing to do an invocation. Whereas, mm. like you said, doing the update um, red votes by one, that's me giving you a clear instruction to complete a procedure, which is obviously the difference, I think, and very clear what the difference is between an invocation and, and a message. I actually think this might be the clearest cut of the four. File transfer is hard to differentiate between messaging because of the way we implement them. Shared databases, I think they are unique, but they have a lot of divergence in the field. Whereas I find, I think that RPCs, it's followed quite a singular path, hasn't it? Yeah. It's, it's evolved in quite a singular way, which is... Do you want to do your historian thing again? Ah, shall I? So as we said, it's like application to application. At first, it's like two big monolith machines trying to tell each other what to do. So it'd be like a SQL database being told by a web browser, please could you update stock? Then you might have had multiple websites, so Amazon UK, US, Europe, might all have different web pages and be governed differently, so they all had their own applications. They want to call maybe their regional database, but then also the global database. So what this created was like a spider web to run remote procedure calls. Just just to interrupt, was, was, was Amazon ever in kind of like spiderweb days. I don't know, to be honest. I don't know. I feel like the very first instance of a remote procedure was, as you described, the whole big, we're talking big mainframes, computer to computer, the, the, the kind of monolithic application. And I think I'd describe it where 
every normally every single bit has to be updated in in lockstep there is everything is tightly coupled to each other yeah so these spider webs were like tightly coupled they might have been on distributed servers and the distributed systems they were no longer the big massive big machines that were used at um, nasa for example uh, but they still would have been tightly coupled um, they would have been upgraded at the same time they would have been dependent on similar languages and and um, network protocols etc however then we had SOA services and service oriented architecture exposing services in a central repository with like a portal and um, using gateways to manage what was connecting and really we'd, we'd moved on from that when I started in the IT world but basically we saw the exposure of a single service that multiple applications could connect to. So rather than having multiple applications create multiple RPC connections to a single server, that single machine would expose a single service that lots of people could call. Does that sound about right? That sounds about about right. I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't say a, a service that lots of people could call because um, it was still I confined. Feel- yeah, I feel that in in kind of like early early land, it was all kind of like manual security and things being explicitly authorized. So yeah, I've, I've I've stated it wrong. It was reuse of a service rather than creating new ones for every connection coming in. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. And then eBay and Twitter came along, and out came REST APIs from Roy Fielding and from the SOA world. We had SOAP. And so we had these REST and SOAP APIs started to form up. And as things progressed, the actual machines themselves started to get smaller. Um, they started to be decoupled um, through microservices. And each microservice might host only one or two APIs. Uh, the idea was is that uh, every machine had a specific function that it performed. And basically, you'd go to the microservice that you wanted to perform your procedure. And to do that, you could orchestrate a big business process by calling multiples of these. So you'd have, I don't know, four, five, 10, 20 RPCs in a single flow to perform your business logic. We probably shouldn't be saying invoking services on a machine when when we're talking about the microservices era because we're now in kind of like the whole commoditization of um of infrastructure so we don't really think about we, we we're calling other instant we're calling instances on on platforms really than sort of explicit physical machines well it's funny because microservices came before like containers and kubernetes and etc etc but it feels because they became big at similar times feels like they're stuck together it does but actually microservices were were much much earlier yeah speaking speaking of much earlier the rest guy wrote his rest paper ridiculously early but i can't think of 99 wasn't it get away get away did the guy write the rest paper in 1999 something like that uh 2000 that is crazy because um I i was thinking Crikey, when did when did I first start seeing REST APIs? Definitely after twenty fifteen. No, no, earlier than that. But question: mm-hmm. Serverless is serverless a example of RPC? Ooh, it's a good one. Thank you. I'm gonna say yes. Yeah. So serverless is that you don't have some kind of a machine sat there idle listening for. Uh, listening for requests, listen with kind of services exposed, waiting to be invoked. Serverless is normally something makes the request, and there is something watching, which then 
provisions the back-end server to do the processing only when there is a uh, demand there. So again, I would probably say that that is RPC because from the perspective of the calling application, it doesn't need to know anything about the transport. Probably the application doesn't really need to know there's a back-end there. It just thinks it's invoking a it just thinks it's invoking this local procedure. As long as it does an invocation, basically. Yeah, got all the all the hallmarks of remote procedure call. The application doesn't care how it gets fulfilled, doesn't care if it's on a microservices, on a microservice, on some random remote server. If it's actually being executed locally, the application can't tell. If there's a call going out and there's doing some fancy serverless stuff behind the scenes, application probably isn't aware, just thinks, oh, this, this call's taken... This procedure's taking a bit of a while to to respond back to me. So yeah, I would I would go I would say serverless is uh, is remote procedure calls. Good, because I would too. So we said what RPC is. Um, I've given two. I've I mean look, I've had two boring history lessons to give today, which is fun. I know, but you've not been able to give one for ages. So we talked about RPC. We talked about its evolution, and uh, you've given a great. Um, differentiation I think between what makes an invocation and what makes a message obviously it comes to the our favorite part of the podcast which is the benefits and uh, the limitations the, the not benefits what's the benefit of RPC Peter well I mean I would say I'd go, I'd go back to the point I just made which is from the applications point of view all of the transport stuff is uh, no longer relevant totally decoupled it doesn't care about things like HTTP or or certificates or routing, it just thinks it's doing some kind of calling a function. So I think from a portability point of view, that is what I would say is, or maybe from from a from a more developer oriented point of view, that is what I would see is the the main benefit of of kind of the remote procedure calls. So that it's portable and that the trans that the transport is agnostic. You, you could use any transport, basically, as long as you're both compatible. Yeah, and I suppose from there you could say that leads you into the whole decoupled nature of being able to talk about some of these topologies and architectures. You're able to get the whole great, all the good things like service reuse and consistency and all those kind of great things because you're able to architect it in that way and it means your applications are pretty simple, your services are pretty simple, and I think that makes for a very powerful um, way of doing things. And if you um, create a service or an API or a, a, an RPC, a remote procedure call that uses a set language, then you can define to your consumers what is acceptable to be used. So, oh, that's a good point. Is, who's the consumer of an RPC? Is it the is it the person making the invocation call, or its consumers, the invokers? I would I would say it's the application. I'd say it's the application that invokes the RPC. Okay. Basically, we don't have to use the native language of the... So you don't have to write SQL, for example. You could call using SOAP. And then that means that multiple people can use can make an invocation on that, on that application because we don't all need to know SQL. We all need to know SOAP, which might be a bit more... Um, more programmer-friendly. Yes, exactly. And it might be the cheapest thing to create because there might be more um, programmers out there. In in that example, you've in that example you've fronted a, a SQL server with some kind of SOAP endpoint. Yeah. 
And that in in that example, you don't really care about the native language. You're just worried about you're just worried about the service. And actually, that gives the application where the invocation is being made. It gives it a bit of isolation from its core code, and it can run validation to make sure that you're not I don't know doing a, a delete all from from table or drop table or something silly. So that's good because that, that gives them the isolation. They can run validation on the service or the remote procedure calls like um, isolated function before it goes into actually start invoking. Good. We talked a little bit about it. The spider web disappears as well, doesn't it? So if you do have a common service that's exposed, which is something you'd more likely do these days with RPC, with what people know most, like APIs, everyone would have to conform to the application specification defined by the invoker. Mm-hmm. Or two people would make a contract, application A and application B, and then what you do is come up with a method to make that service or that procedure call as invocable as possible by as many different people. I had, I had one question based on something that you said, which is the use of the word contract and the defin- and, and, and when do we when 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 at what point would you say services become formalized to the point that you start putting together contracts and interface definitions also i really hate the word contract why do people call these contracts is there is is there some kind of special meaning to the word contract in this because i've always called them as i think i think i've always referred to them as sort of like interface definitions i think the contract suggests that it's been approved by both you you've you've locked it in you've said this is definitely what we're going to be doing so if it's wrong if it doesn't meet this contract then one or the other of us doesn't get paid sort of thing mm. i'm actually a little bit uncomfortable with calling them services because we've assumed there and we've given the i don't know what you what, so normally we'd see services but they don't have to be services yes you're absolutely right i'm i'm bringing with me all of my uh all of my existing exactly my baggage <laughs> my existing baggage and i just can't i just can't think about anything unless it's http and javascript functions Ah, I, it's it's hard not to talk about services because RP, like like this is why the evolution, this is why what we said about evolution is so important. This this is why we let you put that evolution bit in because you don't really see the uh, what we originally used RPC for. You don't necessarily see as much anymore. No, and there's so much more frameworks and and out of the box systems that allow you to do that remote procedure calls without having to get to that level. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's all like obfuscated from you, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think most people would have a fit if they ever had to sort of write raw TCP to a socket because there was none of that free stuff and wrappers available to them. But it doesn't really matter anymore. So in mm. so modern RPC, as long as you can make an invocation on another machine, it's mm-hmm. still RPC. Should we do some not benefits? Some not benefits, yeah. Go on, you start us off. Enco- encourages services <laughs> you have to call something on another machine so you've got to get something to that machine you've got to wait for it to finish and give you the response or whether it's completed successfully or not so, so you're heavily reliant on the network to it and then you're heavily reliant on it being able to do what you've asked it to do it to be able to handle if you've asked it to do something wrong and it being able to tell you effectively 
why something isn't working. Yes, so not only is there, you've got, you're adding the dependency of a network and a networked computer that you may not control yeah. onto onto the running of your application. It also means that you are potentially diversifying the, the technologies and skills required to maintain your estate. If, if, for example, we go back to our example where we're always doing some kind of javascript based web app that means you need to have some javascript skill but as soon yeah. as you start splitting things out and saying oh i've got a, i've got a database here and i've got xyz service there and it all runs on this network then although you're simplifying the topology overall which is probably good you have to be aware that that's those are extra skills that you suddenly need and these are all extra dependencies. And I mean, you think about it, think there's, it, it's a whole, it's a whole industry. It's a whole kind of branch of IT infrastructure, making things reliable and resilient and highly available because systems depend on other systems in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. Oh, there's the other thing we we're talking, to talk about um, Java and JavaScript. The thing that annoys me the most is like on NPM, when you're building yourself a project and then every couple of days you get, there's a security issue with this wrapper, there's a there's a, a new version of this module. And it just made me think how fragile they can all be. So I just started with specific APIs and I was just getting getting going with them about two weeks later and like a big notice came out saying, actually this has been deprecated, you have to move to this new one. As the consumer of that invocation, it was really annoying because obviously I, I didn't have control over the invocation service. I, I could make the procedure call, what I couldn't do was determine how that was displayed to me. So obviously, a disadvantage is that you're dependent on the provider of that procedure call. It takes the control out of your hands and makes you subject to the whims of, of, a, of an API or a service developer. Yeah, I think I think there's maybe another kind of subtle point there, which is around may, maybe slightly different around around kind of control of automatically updating packages because I think there's there is there's there's a distinction between when um, systems where packages automatically update and systems where there is a there is a clearly defined task to pull the latest packages and update then when when packages are pushed then you are you're, you're kind of leaning on the fact that you you trust the package maintainers to always keep things up to date and not break and, anything. and not break anything but and, and the benefit of that is you're always up to date with the latest security fixes features whatever versus the other time you know that you are getting you're getting perfect stability at the risk that you might you might fall so far behind you've got to do a lot of work to catch up yeah at the risk that you would fall you, you, that you fall behind and things can move quickly things can move much quicker than you think i'm thinking like the uh, rapidity of uh, say kubernetes up upgrades as well and the effect that has on infrastructures that have for, that have been stable for a long time so, we, so we, we've had customers before who have sticked with the same infrastructure for like 10 20 years uh, you know, I've I've seen infrastructure that's probably older than than I am. It's very different to what what we see now, and it's the same with almost the procedure calls that we're starting to see, um, with a with you know increased API usage, which is that they could change very quickly. They can be gone tomorrow. Um, it's very fast paced the sort of API world. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why you meant to invest in serverless, so that it. So that you're not too, uh, so that when it all it all disappears the next day, you've not been paying for it. If you're the application that gets invoked by others, you have to manage that now. So we're talking about service registries. 
um, portals, now more, more recently API management software, you've got to manage that cost to say, make sure that the rate limits are there, that the security is right, if you think a lot of these are OAuth now. And in some ways, the, the overhead of, of this, of exposing the your procedure calls that you want others to use mm -hmm. has become more expensive, um, even as it's opened up sort of new markets to people who would never have thought to invoke your services previously. Yeah, well, think about when we when you were doing your evolution history lesson, and at the point where we were talking about ESBs and SOA, and we started talking about advertising and reuse of services, we also we also had to mention things like gateways and security, because at the moment that the moment that things aren't tightly coupled, it, it, it's dynamic who the clients are going to be and potentially who the, which backends are going to be fulfilling and, and operating and, and doing the, the processing of a, uh, of a contract. Fulfilling the procedure call. Yes, exactly, fulfilling the procedure call. As soon as that becomes uh, a dynamic system, there is suddenly, you've suddenly got to put effort in place as the, as, as the backend server, the, the person who's paying the brunt of effort, to in in this transaction you've got to put that kind of effort and expend that sort of management overhead management cost exactly to make sure that well your service isn't being abused and and and, and you do you do that external facing external facing services and you, you'd also do that on 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 like an internal estate as well i feel like this is the first podcast where we've been vehemently sort of agreeing with each other. We've maybe, maybe it's because we had the whole what's the difference between messaging and RPC earlier today. Yeah, it's because RPC is so easy. So in summary, you go first, Peter. How would you summarise uh, remote procedure calls and maybe what we've talked about? What was your take from this podcast? Yeah, so remote procedure calls are another facet of classically defined integration. I feel they're the first one we've discussed which hasn't been a necessary evil and has just been a real simplification and and joy to use and a boon to integration which is probably why they're so popular and they're so easy to understand and everyone likes them everyone likes the concepts of them they probably don't call them that but everyone loves this everyone loves the concepts behind them vote vote rpc vote rpc aiden how would you summarize what we've discussed i would describe it as from humble one machine to another beginnings an integration type that has progressed rapidly and as you say, generally for the better. I don't think anyone could think oh, APIs are oh, they've caused us caused us such misery. You know, the whole industry was built on SOA for for a long time, and it still comes up today. You need to have done SOA for specific uh, qualifications and and things. And you know, it's getting more and more difficult to um, I don't know see a project that is SOA specific. It's, it's just expanded in such a positive way, and it's not that the others haven't. It's just that this has done so with such orders of magnitude it's one of it's like one of the things you could point out and say okay that is getting orders of magnitude better as as time goes on so i think rpc is is useful it's made interconnectivity between machines easier and it, it generally fits the decoupled um decoupled approach of of connecting to machines yeah the limitations we've said have, have really just been general computer limitations good okay lovely that's all for this week thank you for listening bye, -bye. goodbye <laughs>